Welcome to Trail and Error, a look at the trail running world from the podium to the pack with your hosts Jay Grady and Tristan Stevenson. We decided to start our own trail running podcast to talk to the people we find interesting in the trail and ultra running world, to find out their highs and lows, their momentous successes and their abject failures, and to perhaps give us all a little bit of inspiration to take on some adventures and challenges of our own. We'll be speaking to runners and athletes, race directors and coaches, sports nutritionists and doctors to get the best out of our own running and hopefully yours too. We hope you enjoy the podcast and if you do, please hit like and subscribe via all the normal podcast feeds. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Trail and Error. Uh, On this episode, Jay and I are joined by Ellis Bland. Hello, Ellis. Hello. Thanks for joining us. We had some technical difficulties there. Um, Despite all operating Macintoshes, it is incredibly difficult to get three people on a call, apparently. It sure is. Yeah, I would have, um, I'd still be cup and string, as I was saying before, if I could. So uh, happy to be (laughs) here now, though. Yeah, good to have you. So um, we are recording almost exactly a week after the arc of attrition started down here in Cornwall, a week and an hour. Um, which you raced in this year and, and last year. Um, and you managed a solid second place with a fantastic time. Um, before we get into your experience on that race, I'm interested to know how your recovery is seven days later. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, quarter past one. So I reckon I would have gone what, through Kinex Sands. And yeah, seven days later, I honestly, I thought I'd got away with it. And then I went for a little run yesterday and about two miles from the office was in all sorts of trouble. So, um, yeah, to be honest, it's just everything feels fine. My eating is ferocious, um, but I quite like that. It's just my quads are totally trashed. And I don't know, it's so different. Whenever I race down in Cornwall, it just feels like you've been on a roller coaster. Whereas obviously when we're up here in the north, you know, you lock into climbs for 45 minutes an hour. Down there, it's like four minutes. And it's, um, I just, I personally don't think you can train for it. I can't train for it up here. That's for sure. I, I don't know where I'd go. Interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah tr- uh, recovery is okay. But my quads are- So was that your first run today? I actually, a friend came to the office on Tuesday and we went for a walk together, which became like one of those weird shuffles that you sometimes see people doing. And then you think, God, I'd never do that. And then I was doing that. Uh, That was fine because it was just on the heel. But then, yeah, yesterday, that was my first run back and I wasn't ready. So that's fine. So here's what it is. Got to rest up, eh? Is that so? Is that kind of is that kind of abnormal for you in terms of after an ultra being sort of seven days out and still it's a bit of an effort? Or are you normally quicker to recover? Uh, I've got my recovery down quite solid. So like after the Chevy go, albeit that was fifty eight miles, but with the exact same elevation, I was back running on the. So that was a Saturday race. I was back running on the Tuesday. And then the following week, ramped it up to a 120-mile week in preparation for the arc. But obviously, like racing up in the Sheviots, it's 
you know, soft moorland ground. And I found that a lot more, even with like CCC, which I had a disappointing run at, admittedly, I was back running very soon after um, with no implications. I'm always air on the side of caution. My coach very much airs on the side of caution. But we've been doing this long enough together now to know when is the right time to come back. So now's not the right time to start running. I don't let it bother me. I think some people get really hung up on how quick they can get back running, even if it's just commuting to work. But it's just totally empty miles. You know, I'm just practicing yoga with my partner and even that's hard enough. So um, just enjoying doing nothing, walking the dog and eating well and eating badly in equal measure. <laughs> Well, yoga is Jay's uh, favourite word, so um, you guys can talk about that if you want. I think chocolate's my favourite word. Yeah, no, I don't. Okay, but I haven't found yoga and chocolate in the same practice yet, so I just. Well, I used to drink whiskey enough. and and do yoga at the same time. I've seen a picture of well. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yoga is one of those things where before I got with Rachel many many years ago, I had a preconceived idea as to what yoga was. In all honesty, I thought it was just deep stretching. And then I started seeing Rachel like press handstand, do all sorts of stuff. And to me, that was more gymnastics. And I can safely say I'm nowhere near that level, but I get more satisfaction after an hour's yoga class than I do from any race I've ever done. Because it is, really, I just find it so unbelievably difficult. And I always say to Rachel, like, did I do well? And she's like, well, it's not really about that. And I'm like, but did I do that well? No. And she's like, well, yeah, you did well because you, you made it. And uh, so I don't know. Yoga has become this sort of weird thing in my life. I, I'm not, I don't practice many yogic values. I find the breath work highly advantageous for running ultras. But um, it's a weird quest of mine to become good at yoga. Um, I currently stuck. So have you, have you? There's a, a brilliant uh, film out on the. Oh, I get to do the Patagonia plug. There's a brilliant film out on the Patagonia channel. There we go. Patagonia bingo complete. Um, the Yin and Yang of Jerry Lu, uh, Jerry Lopez, uh, which is a brilliant film which marries his um, his passion for yoga and his surfing and his kind of spirituality he begins the video with a with a, an apology to the hundreds of people he dropped in on on waves when he was an arrogant ass yeah. kind of moving up the thing and uh and then to see this guy has he's mellowed into his late 60s but to still see him on a board you know it's just a a, a vision of symmetry and balance yeah i can and, totally see it it's like i said i don't practice many yogic values you know when i race i go to war with myself and with those around me um to be honest, I like lying down on a mat for an hour. It's the, I have to be forced to rest. Like even this week, Rachel last night in the car was saying on the way back from yoga, like, yeah, you have to rest. And, you know, I'm straight out with the dog. I'm straight back to work and straight doing this, straight doing that. And actually, weirdly, whilst I don't find the yoga restful, it is a chance to be forced to lie down at times. And that is something which I think in the 21st century we don't really do enough of so um I and to do it properly i think it's even if you don't realize it it's meditative because i guess the definition of meditation is to focus the whole or, or part of the brain 
to the exclusion of all other elements of the brain on one task uh, and block out everything else. And so you have to, it's like playing golf, isn't it? In the golf swing, I don't play golf, but I, I know the principles of tuning into the swing is everything and you block everything else out. And I think that's a little bit what we get from running as well. But, um, you know, yoga follows through with that, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, setting intentions at the start of a yoga class and revisiting an intention is very, very similar to the arc. You know, mm. at the arc, I had my intentions, you know, and people would laugh in the build up because they say, well, what's the goal? And I'd be like, honestly, I need to finish this. Like there was a real monkey on my back. Uh, that was the primary objective. You know, there was a chance for me. We'll get on to talk about that, where maybe first was an opportunity and the bridge was too far. And there was a moment where I revisited my intention, which was you could try and bridge this gap, but it could cost you the race. And that was with like eight miles to go. So, you know, that's quite a cheap way of saying I got out of winning, but it is, I did revisit that intention and saying, just get this, finished you know just mm. get this over line like since when is first place the only option you know god heaven forbid getting a top 10 finish and being disappointed like that's i don't know my mindset has changed with my approach to running you know i used to be a mid pack to late pack i mean my first ever race under sevens at Corma sports i came second to last you know my dad always tells me the reason the lad came last was because he was wearing sandals like i've come, <laughs> I've come quite a long way and I think sometimes my own ego and my own arrogance thinks first is first and second is nowhere. And the arc was really special this weekend to revisit that. And CCC did a lot to change my mindset and my approach to racing. And I'm definitely carrying that through. I've had two back-to-back second places at the Chevy and this at the arc. And I've been really chuffed. So maybe it's maturity. I don't know. Maybe it's yoga. I don't know. But... Um, I'm definitely more content, uh, feel less pressure. So that was definitely a real takeaway. So, yeah, I guess you're right with intentions and crossover between the two from yoga to running. It's, it's definitely changing me as a person. Whether it is yoga doing that, I don't know. But why chance it and change a winning recipe or a second place recipe? So, yeah, nice. That's good. It's good to hear. Alice. So, um, Tell us about the experience, or maybe you want to tell us about. We just focus on the arc for a little bit. Yeah, there's other stuff we want to talk about. Maybe start with last year's arc, and then let's go to this year's one and sort of the different experiences and everything. Yeah, I mean, last year's arc was was a really funny one because honestly, if Stephen Cousins would have come up to me at the start of that and shoved that microphone in my face, I would have told him, "Yeah, I'm on for a blinder." I felt absolutely good to go and really sharp, and. After about six miles, it was humid. I remember the day was a humid day and it was a hard one to dress for. Um, I know you were in shorts, Tris, and I remember being a bit enviable of that. And I felt very hot very early on. And obviously it's 100, so you're not exactly pushing it. It's not like the start of the rat where it's like all guns blazing. Um, the coast path is also really wide. There's ample opportunity to overtake. And I was sweating profusely by mile 10. I thought I've got to kick on because this might be a bit of pre-race jitters. And then it was probably about when we did the beach crossing, which I think is maybe like mile 16. I knew I was in all sorts of trouble then. And long story short, I ended up having to walk the flats, walk the downhills, walk everything. And I got into that rugby club at mile 25 and the medic, 
pretty much stopped my watch for me. I was profusely sweating. It conspired. I had a terrible chest infection. I had lungs x-rayed and MRI'd filled with a purple gas and they told me I had about 20% lung capacity and I wasn't to know because obviously for these things you put in these huge tapers and I felt great. Uh, just the minute I had to try and send some oxygen to my legs, it was a, a nightmare. So that took about seven months to get over and to get back properly running. I would say about seven months it took because obviously with that, you know, I'm a, I race at just under 12 stone, but my body probably wants to be about 13 and a half stone. So it very, very naturally wants to power weight back on. So having cardiovascular issues is quite an issue for a runner of my body type because it's very, very hard to not only eat well in order to fuel, but if you can't then train in some capacity and I was unable to train in any capacity um yeah it was a really really rough year actually um so going into this year there was a monkey on my back because I was embarrassed and I think ego is something which is widely under discussed within the ultra running community you know I too often talk about the team around me and their team is everything to me. You know, this weekend it was Elsie and Rachel was my crew, but there's a big team everywhere else. But there does come a point where it's like, well, it is also just you doing this, Ellis. Like You are the only one in this team running 100 miles and my ego was definitely tarnished last year. And, um, you know, I wanted to do it for myself more than anything to prove I could run the 100 miles and run it well and finish it and um yeah it was just a fantastic experience and i think again revisiting that intention as to why i came back to the arc it was probably if i was to map it out perfectly it would be to say just get this one ticked off because you need to prove to yourself that you could actually complete this and i was a uh, yeah re relief really there's a really nice picture of me and jane at the finish line and it's me giving her a hug normally it's the other way around you know I wanted to hug her and that was a real sort of strange celebration of being like, I did this, I, I finished this, you know, I did this for you, Jane, I did this for Rachel, I did this for Elsie, my parents. And um, I, to be honest, I wasn't remotely asked that I came second. You know, if Daniel would have caught me, I would have taken third. You know, if Emma Stewart would have caught me, I would have taken fourth. It was never really about that. And um, I was just super happy to just get it ticked off really so yeah I've, I, was, so I often think of ultras <clears throat> especially and it's probably true of racing in general but I think even more so of ultras you you kind of if you're finishing these races you tend to be leaving everything on the table right and your positioning is kind of arbitrary in respect of that like if you do everything you can whether you come first or tenth you've still done everything you can it just so happens there are nine people faster than you or nine people slower than you right hundred percent. And, you know, that's something which happens all the time up here in the North with the fell racing circuit. You know, I'm not a fell runner. I've raced the fells for fun and I love that relationship I have with the fells. I don't take it too seriously. And, um, I mean, this fell circuit, the standard is phenomenal. I mean, and to put it into perspective in 2019, I raced Borodale fell race and came, I think, 11th with a time of 3.30 and then three years later I came 16th but took 15 minutes off that time. Now 
that would be a disappointing run if you only looked at it from a positional standpoint. Yeah. But time is everything. You know, I had time goals for the arc. It was always to finish. And then it was like, I know you, Tris, came so close to going under 20. So I was like, well, let's get one in and amongst there. Anything under 20 is a bonus. Anything under record pace is even better. And um, I think growing older and running longer and running more often time is becoming the factor and only when the weather's really naff do you ever think well this is just about position because time's gone out the window today and um i think that's quite a good thing that i have learned is to really like study people's times pit yourself against them and say well if it all goes well where do you think you'll finish time wise because you can't do anything about you know if mark derbyshire chooses to rock up and runs a blinder then so be it you know i can't control his race not that well and he can't control mine. And uh, yeah, so for me, I guess time is becoming everything. And then position is like, well, not many can run that time. So I should do all right. And uh, that was sort of my yeah. thought process at the arc. Yeah. That's interesting because at the other end of the scale, at, at, at mid and tail, a lot of people um, won't talk about time or, or will have a time, but hold it very loosely because the the kind of the pressure then on on completing the time might at, at that level uh, forgo the win or for, forgo the win forgo forgo the finish yeah you know pushing and and not adjusting in the race to the body as well um, yeah so that's interesting to hear that's the focus at the front end yeah I mean I think if you're looking towards the mid to late pack you know because this this is coming from someone who now takes great pride in running at front of races. But like I said before, I used to be there in the mid-pack. And I always remember, and I use this quite a lot when I'm speaking to people, because the most common thing, and Tris will have had this said to him so many times, is like, I don't understand how you can run it so fast. And it's like, well, I sort of gave myself a half an hour window in that race where I knew I was going to finish. So something like the Rat, for example, I was in an just over 10 hours and I knew I'd be in about 9.45 to 10.15 so when I went into that I had such clear vision as to what was going to happen whereas I remember in that race I passed somebody and they I had 18 miles to go and they were 18 miles in Hmm. and I remember sort of smiling to myself thinking god I'm going to get peppered with people being impressed with this result yet that person has just watched the lead runner come through and they are 18 miles into their race like we're not the tough ones at the front. We're trying to get it done quickly as possible because it scares us shitless if we're out there for too long. I do think there's real credit there for these people, especially at something like the Arc. You know, running through two nights, if you're really using that 36 hours, I've witnessed darkness twice in in runs before. And the fear that strikes is horrific, whereas, weirdly, I was going for a strange situation where I kind of wanted to still finish in the dark. And in the end, it was just amazing with the sun coming up and I got to turn my head touch off for the last 45 minutes. And, you know, people consider me a tough runner. Well, I'm certainly not. The people that were probably just leaving Land's End at that point <laughs> are pretty tough. So, yeah. Well, I've said this before. It's tougher all, all parts of the pack. Um, and yeah, perhaps toughest at the back when you're just grueling it out for such a long period of time, you know? Yeah, especially when you've got cutoffs looming. Like, that's another yeah. thing. I don't ever fear the cutoff. Like, 
oh god if the grim sweeper catches you up it must feel awful so it's like it's hard work i don't know i just have so much respect for what's going on down the field because honestly like i said i'm just running to get it finished within a tiny window the thought of going out there with no preconceived idea within about six hours of when i'm going to finish i couldn't do that so you know that's why the spine scares me no end uh, there you're talking in yeah. days like i've made yeah, up yeah, yeah. on this day uh, no no thank you speaking of the rat we should probably touch on that i mean that was um an, an unreal performance from you um your kind of debut in cornwall i guess at least as far as i know on ultras that's for sure yeah um and um well i remember because i obviously i ran about a third of that race with you in fact um i remember just around the briefing fergie came up to me the race director and was like Oh, that guy, Alice Bland, says he's going to do it in under 10 hours. And I, I, you know, I had plans on running under the course record, which at the time I think was about 10.40, 10.50, something like that. And I was like, holy shit, I hadn't planned for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you very, very nearly did. Um, and you did shatter the course record in the process. Um, I mean, is that your kind of standout performance in ultras? I mean, you had the Cheviot Goat as well, which is a second and a good time. Yeah. But do, you, do you see the, the rat as the sort of one of your best performances thus far? Yeah, I mean, this is so sacrilegious what I'm about to say, but it is true. I am falling more and more out of love with running these big mountain races. And CCC was a real nail in the coffin of that side of my running use running in inverted commas I'm getting so sick and tired of just climbing and climbing and then running a bit on the flat and then descending and then doing it all again and the, you know the age-old debacle of when's the US runner going to win UTMB and yet they can obliterate western states and the canyons and I think it's because for a runner like myself all I want to do is run you know at CCC, I'm climbing up to 2,500 meters of having aura, I'm in altitude, and I'm thinking, I'm not enjoying this. This isn't what I conceive as running. Whereas something like the rat when me and you were just throwing such punches at each other and it was relentless and it was like, your crew's there, but no one's stopping. The aid station's there, but we're not stopping. And it's like, it's more like a boxing match. And mm. that's... It felt like that. Yeah, it felt like that for me too. And... uh that's for me is what my idea of running is. I love the idea of the romantics who talk about Tour de Giants and I just slogged it out and I came up with names for my kneecaps and it was such a spiritual experience. Like I can see <laughs> it. It's just not me. I think when I was younger that was what I wanted to be. Whereas when you have experiences like the rat, and if I had just followed the very last course arrow, I would have come in for a nine fifty five. But throwing punches like that in racing and really tactical running and is where I want to go. And I'm heading over to the US this year, as long as my health stays good, uh, to race over there because there's a huge part of me. And yeah, there's a bit of grass is always greener and maybe I've failed a little bit more on the big mountain scene. But the thought of someone saying to me, you know, it's very similar to what you pulled off at uh, Serpent Tris, like, you're going to run 100k in eight hours okay you're going to run 100k in seven hours like 
that's super exciting for me. And actually, the 100K distance goes out the window. It's all about time, you know, leg speed turning over and going forwards with my running. You know, I'm 29 years old and 13 August. I want to run fast for as long as I can. And then things like Tour de Giant and Spine may yeah. present themselves, but I don't know. I want to run as quickly as I can for as long as I can. So, yeah, is the Rat a standout performance for me? It was definitely a real box ticked as to like reaffirming my ideology of running fast for long. So, um, yeah, it was a real um, move for me on the journey. I think well, while you... you've got the speed, I think it's it's definitely, yeah. why not battle things out? The endurance is going to stay there for the next 30 years for you. Mm. You know, physiologically, that's that's a really slow decline on endurance. But speed is, is when it's gone, it's gone, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I think if anyone looked at, and they do, I'm not very vocal on Strava. Um, yeah, I find it a bit of a toxic environment. But um, if anyone looked at like a typical 100-mile training week, for me, they would see a track session in there. They would see a, a 5K tempo run or a park run or something of that distance. Um, they'd see hill reps. They'd see all that side, which you probably would more correlate often with the marathon side of things. Um and it is just because for me, VO2 max is absolutely everything. And, you know, to run a sub 16 minute 5K is where I want to be to be running a sub eight hour 100 kilometer. And there is huge crossover there. And I probably do spend more time working with my coach on leg speed and turnover than I do anything else. And, you know, that's why it correlates to something like when I ran Hadrian's Wall and that was an 86 miler and we held and I uh, held a nine minute average for the whole thing. And I herald all of that to doing speed work, you know, keeping leg, leg speed at the utmost and VO2 max really high is the only reason why that got pulled off. You know, 13 miles on the flat was the end of um, Hadrian's Wall and every one of those miles was a low eight minute or high seven minute mile. You know, a lot of time can be made up at the end of these races. And I think it's something which is widely overlooked within the ultra running world because I think people think, well, I'm running 100 miles, so I've got to chuck in a couple of 50-mile training runs. And I'm like, God, I never never go above 20. 20 mile is mine. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, every now and again, if something presented itself and my coach was like, oh, there's this wicked 29-mile loop on the fells. Yeah. It's but they're be, outliers, aren't they? Yeah, it's going to be really fun. Then I'll be like, yeah, yeah, well, we can do that. That's a great idea yeah. because there's something to it. But if someone said, Ellis, I want you to go and slog out for a 32-mile road run, I'd be like, oh, I'm all right. Like I could make that up elsewhere. So hmm. I don't know. It's just strings to your bow and it takes a lifetime to – and I'll never get there, but it's. Uh, I'll keep trying. But it, there is a bit of a um... – not a paradox, but it's a it's a misnomer that you know you just need to train specific specific to the race that you're doing, right? I mean, like you know, I agree with you that speed work's very important for ultras, even though you're never going to run at that speed during that race, and strength training as well, lifting as well. I mean, there's no, you know, I'm not intending on lifting, but deadlifting 100 kilos at any point 
during an ultra marathon. And yet I'm going to do it because I know that it will help stave off injury and it will give my legs a strength that they wouldn't otherwise have at mile 80 or whatever. And then the recovery afterwards is going to be that much better because I've already, you know, conditioned those muscles to some of the kind of, you know, arduous uh, experiences they're going to go through in the race by lifting heavy weights. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, right at the start of this call, I'm talking about how trash my quads are. How much I neglect my strength work is alarming. How much I rely on climbing on the fells as a substitute for squatting is alarming. Um, it's uh, it's widely discussed between me and Rowan, my coach, that I don't put in enough time in the gym. How a lifetime from a junior climbing on the fells is somehow being used as a almost a caveat to, well, it's fine, Ellis, because your legs are so strong because you can climb for two days solid. Well, it didn't work this weekend, did it? You know, I can remember being in St. Ives, and this is the first time this has ever happened to me in a race, not at CCC, not on any double Bob Graham attempt. I can remember sitting in St. Ives' checkpoint and saying to myself, my legs feel like they should feel tomorrow. Like, wow. even in the race, I could feel doms coming on in the quads. And it's a picky old climb out of St. Ives. It's not steep. It's certainly not flat. And I can remember doing that. And that was the first time Gavin dropped me. And fair play to him because he read that so well because I had no answer at all the whole way into Hale. So it was a definite lesson learned there, which is maybe get on the squat rack because it, it, it wasn't enough, you know, the fells did not help with that at all. So, I must say, when you guys came into, I was helping Stephen uh, film the thing this last weekend, and uh, when you guys came into St Ives, you'd both switched off your head torches, and uh, so it kind kind of caught me out a little bit because somebody had just come through before you did, and as they came in, um, it was just one head torch, and I thought I've got a scoop. One of them's pulled away from the other one. And so I shouted out and, and they responded in the affirmative that they were the lead runner. Um, but then when I went over with the camera, they were one of the archangels just turning up yeah. and they had like a, it'd been decorating the day before. So we had a hoodie with like paint smears all over it. And um, so my scoop went out the window. Do you think it was the new Varga um, apparel? <laughs> I wasn't sure. There's some new Saisky top. Um so that kind of bombed me out a little because I announced it live on the feed as well. Here we have the race leader and it wasn't them. But the other thing was when you finally came in, there was a drug dealer just waiting around the corner. Um, before the Archangels turned up, I was set up and I've got, you know, a couple of grand's worth of satellite dish um, and all the, the camera equipment and everything else. And this guy just kept walking past me kind of, you know, yeah, asking bought, if I, I was bought, all right. I bought some speed off him on the way out. <laughs> I think the, maybe not enough. No, that no, one. Like, no. <laughs> but yeah, when you when everyone started turning up, I thought, oh, thank God, at least I'm going to get to the next filming location with all my kit. I thought I'm going to get rolled here. Um, so yeah, you couldn't have come through fast enough for me. Oh well, I'm, I'm glad that's I'm glad that my arrival saved you from getting stabbed. Um, I was very happy with that. No, yeah, Saint Ives was a uh, funny moment. Really, I remember. I've got a real potty mouth. I always try my hardest not to swear, but um, I remember getting to St. Ives and I just looked at Fergie and said, how was that? And obviously so many of you guys had spoken to me about 
Oh, Ellis, honestly, that section from Land's End to St. Ives, and everyone kept talking about it, talking about Cousin Jack and all these, oh, it's just so gnarly. And again, this ego comes back into play, which is like, ah, oh, shut up. Can't be that bad, right? I described it to Ferg at mile 82 when I saw him in St. Ives as fucking abhorrent. <laughs> and he just looked at me, I was like, good God. And all we kept saying to each other, me and Gavin, because we were chatting a lot, um, he's a really, it was a really nice guy, sort of caught me off guard and um because i'm not and um <laughs> and i got into st ives and i just remember saying to Ferg, i was trying so hard to keep those miles below 17 minute miles like yeah yeah and i felt yeah. like we were shifting and it was like yeah. every time my watch would go off and i was like god it is that slow and it, it was just really made me laugh i mean to put into context in a fell race we're climbing up like vertical slopes in like 14 minute miles like it really was that picky and um i don't know if you're going to speak to gavin or not i hope he speaks about some of the falls he had because that guy's made out of rubber it was unbelievable he was bouncing all over the place and it was it was a really you know people will speak a lot about conditions and they were very good like they were fantastic but that section into saint ives was it was wet underground and wet on the ground i'm sorry but um yeah, it was a, it was quite a moment getting into St. Ives. That bit is, um, I mean, even on fresh legs, I've been dropped off at Zena before and ran through to St. Ives and, and up and everything. So even on fresh legs, it's very difficult to, I mean, I, I work in kilometers, but you're looking at like nine minute kilometers, yeah. even on fresh legs, really, without, yeah, yeah. whilst keeping things safe, you know, um, not being reckless. It is just very difficult to get any kind of rhythm going because it wiggles and twists and turns. I remember seeing James Elson getting interviewed three, four years ago, whenever the, 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 I think it was the first time he did the arc by Stephen Cousins afterwards. And it was muddy that year, so it was even worse. And I remember he, he just turned to him and Stephen said, what, what do you think of that Zena bit? And he just went, it's just a fucking mess. Yeah. And yeah. it really is. Like really the was. whole bit. It, it's like badly designed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I know when they did that bit of close path. I don't know. Maybe tunnels would have been a better idea. It was a uh, yeah, yeah. It was. It was a mess. Actually, that's a good way to describe it. It's just a spaghetti mess. So um, and there's yeah. that one bit where the path just disappears and you just have to kind of climb over a load of rocks, right? Oh yeah, that was funny. Um, <laughs> it was good being with Gavin because obviously he's an Ambleside boy and um, we were sort of in our hazy, almost drunken states. We're just laughing at me like this is just like that section on Bow Fell and like just drawing parallels to the Lake District, even though I could like see the waves beneath me and I was like, We could easily be on S cause here and um but it was, it was good fun, but um I was really glad to see it. Cause again, revisiting that thing about wanting to run and finding moments like that in races more and more frustrating. It's like, oh, here's a bit of like bit of arbitrary running that I have to get through so I can run again and um, and stop start uses energy as well right yeah, you know people don't realize it but accelerating and braking it works your muscles quite hard you know no definitely definitely no i was uh, like you're saying happy to arrive at st ives that was basically race over for me there and um i knew from then on i would get to the finish um there was a really funny moment and elsie davis will not probably speak about this I will speak about this. <laughs> I know the Dunes of Doom quite well. I've wrecked them a few times. And uh, 
when I arrived in the car park, you know, you go for that little industrial unit in Hale. Well, I'm like running towards Rachel, my long-term girlfriend, and I'm like 10 yards from her, and she's just staring beyond me. And I'm like, hello. And she's like, oh, Ellis, it's you? And I'm like, I'm like still me, babe. It's me in the coast path. And she's like, no, you're in first place. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm thinking, well, Hale was a nightmare. Like, I did a full lap of an Asda car park. And um, I thought, well, if he's going to have got lost, it could well be in Hale. Like, it is quite picky getting around it. Mm-hmm. So then I just put the absolute burners on through the dunes. I was like, I don't know if he knows them as well as me. I'm going to put in a big stint. I mean, Rachel said to put it in perspective, Daniel, who's a good mate of mine, his tracker actually said he was asleep at one point in the dunes. And, um, <laughs> and I got to Gadrivi and then... Poor Elsie and Rachel stood there and they just said, oh, Ellis, we're so sorry. We don't know how we missed him coming through, but you are actually still in second. And throughout the whole dunes, I didn't see a head torch ahead. I didn't see one behind. And I think my big takeaway, and I was with my coach on Monday doing a race debrief, I said, it doesn't matter if it's like CCC where I made like 80 spots up in the last 18 miles or the Chevy at Goat where I sprinted the last two miles to come second you only seem to get one shot in an ultra to make a break and it doesn't matter how long it goes on for but when your brain says that's it that's it and yeah i certainly didn't lose my head when they told me i was back in second or always had been in second but even when elsie said ellis you were literally two minutes 30 behind him i timed him coming through i'd done too much in the dunes and it was at that moment where that intention was revisited of like well, that was your chance, Ellis. You didn't even know what was going on. But now, if you catch him, it's because of a mistake he's going to make. It's not going to be because you're going to be able to do anything spellbinding. And mm. and then we hit those sons of bitches. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God. And every time I was at the bottom, he was at the top of the next one. And it was just like that the whole way in. And in the end, he put sort of 25, 26, 7 minutes on me, which is flattering. Because I think with about four miles to go, I was about five minutes back. But that's just how it goes sometimes. And I was really happy just to let him go. He just ran such a brilliant race. And I, I, I'd just done too much in the dunes thinking I was bloody winning. So it was, uh, yeah, poor Elsie and Rachel, they, they've had to take one there. But um, yeah, I don't know how he made it into the dunes without them seeing him, but he did. Yeah, it can get confusing around there. Um, I remember a similar situation, actually, when I went through there last year chasing Mark. My mum seemed to think that he was only about two minutes ahead of me going into the dunes. And he must have been at least 10, I think, by that point. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, OK, that's not that bad. And then it was only when I saw her at the next point, she was like, yeah. oh, no, he's he's like in poor truth. <laughs> like, well, he must have sprinted that last bit or he wasn't two minutes ahead of me before. Well, yeah, that's it. And I think, I think, you know, always credit to like your crew because I mean, obviously your mum seems to always be there. And, you know, my parents are like that when I'm after Bob Grahams and double Bob Grahams and they've got a lot of shit going on themselves. They've been up all night. They probably now hate one another. They probably resent, <laughs> probably resent you. And it's like, I get it all the time. Like, oh, you're only a few minutes back from first. And I'm like, Nah, I know I'm not because I saw them like five minutes ago and they were about 25 minutes ahead. It's like, 
I don't know how they missed him, but they did. And um, we had a good laugh about it at the end. But, um, yeah, it was uh, quite a quite a run a run for freedom through the dunes to find out I was exactly where I was at the start of them. Did you hear about the guy in the brambles? Oh my god! So I was in the unicorn on the Sunday, and it was like trending. Everyone is talking about <laughs> hashtag brambles. I don't know about this. Brambles. <laughs> you, um, you tell us about brambles. That's some, amazing. Some guy. Um, basically, I can't, I don't even know where it was. Just be um, on one's end. Just so just, yeah, he managed to get himself into a, a, a real maze of gorse and bramble to the point where he couldn't get out. It basically closed behind him like some kind of enchanted forest. Like Pam's Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and a runner running past heard him shouting for help. So um, so she stopped and started to investigate. And there's this guy he, everywhere he moves. So it's starting to sound a bit like uh, Barkley on steroids now because he's just ripping himself up everywhere he goes. <laughs> to the point where I believe this is correct, that Andy Goundry, who, who's one of the checkpoint managers, uh, local guy, um, and Andy got sent out and dispatched, and they used a combination of Andy on one end and Andy Trudgeon back in Race HQ, um, retracing this guy's breadcrumbs to guide him out, almost like take two steps to your left, walk forward five paces, turn 90 degrees to your right, walk two paces. And it took him an hour to get him out. I mean, he's still got a gold buckle. Yeah, he finished. He really? Went, he went back to the checkpoint, I've been told. <laughs> He's like back really? to the checkpoint, probably dipped in iodine. And, <laughs> and then it's like, do you want to carry on? And he's like, fuck yeah. What, what was and this all comes back to this whole point of like front runners being tough. If I fell into a pan's labyrinth of gorse and brambles, <laughs> I'd be calling the Coast Guard and accept nothing less than a helicopter. Like, it's just, but yeah, hashtag bramble guy. <laughs> like made it all the way to the unicorn on Sunday afternoon and me and Mark Derbyshire Brilliant. Were, were he was eating with his family and I was with Rachel and we were wetting ourselves because I was just like <laughs> I said Mark what would you do in that situation he made some crack about if he got tangled in brambles no one would ever find him and oh it was so funny but yeah tough as woodpecker lips that guy it's unbelievable <laughs> So that's funny. impressive. He deserves an award, I think, for gold buckling it, even having had to call the emergency services out, basically. Well, I had oh, to you know, if you reward that, somebody's going to try and beat it next year, though. Yeah, well, I had to laugh because they were all talking about on the Facebook page. I, I love these Facebook pages. I love to hate them. I just love the comments. <laughs> and like, someone was like inquiring about Bramble Guy, who's now, he has no name, just Bramble Guy. And I think yeah. it was like Stephen Cousins just commented, being like, yeah, and he placed really well, actually. Like, so nonchalant. Like, yeah, he was fine. <laughs> like, this guy probably looked like Edward Scissorhands. Like, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, he's classed such a funny race, actually. Maybe they need to make scissors, like, um, mandatory kit for removing oneself from brambles. Yeah. Well, throwers. Add to the kit list. Um, cool. So, I... I, I we were talking a little bit about your mum and dad crewing for you. I'm interested. The Bland family name is quite a big name in running um, up in the north. Some of the best fell runners ever have that surname. I know there's a, there's a sports shop chain as well, right? Yeah. Can Bland. you can you clarify for me the sort of family tree and how you fit into all of this, if at all? Uh, not really. I don't really fit into it anywhere. I'm forever getting 
dragged into it when I'm running well and I'm forever getting booted out of it when I'm running back. Um, <laughs> no, th- so there's the Borodell Blands, who's like um, Billy Bland, Gavin Bland. Uh, they literally live in the Borodell Valley or lived there and they just raced the fells. Then you've got Pete Bland, who sadly died, uh, yeah. which was just harrowing because COVID and he was like the life and soul of the lakes and um he's there like the Kendall Blands. There's just almost like clans of us. And uh, right. like I said, you get adopted when you're running well. And then on the Tannoy, they'll tell you at a fell race that you're not one of theirs when you like, <laughs> finish anything other than like top five, which for me in a fell race is like most most races. So, um yeah, there's um, no direct relation in terms of Billy Bland is not my dad. Nor would I want him to be, because to fill those shoes would be phenomenal. And uh, anyone who follows the fell scene, just look at some of the records that he still holds from the 70s. And either there was so much doping going on back then, or they really were just (laughs) absolutely another level. It'd be like running me running the rat in 10 hours, and there you're doing it in eight and a half. Like, they're so far ahead. Like there's some races in the lakes which I can't come within 40, 40 minutes of some of Billy's records, and the races are just over three hours long for me. Like, wow. it just n- another level. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of us, and um, it, it's a, a curse and a blessing in equal measure. Well, and every time you do well in a race, you are kind of perpetuating the kind of brand, a bland mythology as well. Not mythology because it's real, but like well, you yeah. are supporting this legend of the of, with that surname as well. Yeah, for sure, and that is quite nice to forge your own path. And like my dad was, he ran on the fells. He didn't run past forty, and um, he, arthritis in both ankles, both knees, and. He was the one who very early on said to me, Ellis, you've got a real knack for running long. And I would have been about 23 at this time. And um, weirdly together, we sort of hatched this plan to like, let's just sack the fells off and use them for fun, like as a training exercise. And weirdly, when I speak about my running, I often use the term we, and I'm often referring to me and dad, like a lot of things get hatched together over a cup of coffee and he would make suggestions as to like maybe you should do this or maybe you shouldn't kick there and I'm like why are you telling me when I shouldn't shouldn't kick I was like you'd never even made it to that point in a race and um, there's always a really good bit of banter between the two of us about my racing um, but he very much is integral to it uh, so yeah it's um, it is a really lovely thing we've got going on and sometimes it works for the best and sometimes it doesn't work out well and that's just that's what happens when you're too close to your parents. I guess sometimes they they can be your harshest <laughs> critics and your biggest fans. Yeah. So yeah, I've seen. Both I mean, it's, I, it's, I think it's definitely a good idea for you to plan because you are relatively young in the sport compared to most people, um, and obviously with that you've got you know at least the next twenty years where you're going to be competitive. And I think that warrants a good plan. Um, Unlike people like me who came to the sport a bit later and I'm like, well, might have a couple of years of decent running left in me and then it's all going to start to unwind. You know, you've 
you know, it's, I mean, it's, there aren't many sub 30 year olds doing hundred milers, you know, most of them are competing in marathons and, or, or fell races or faster stuff, you know? Um, yeah. so, you know, you've got an opportunity there. I mean, I sound like, it sounds a bit condescending. It doesn't no, it doesn't way, at but... all. It sounds lovely. And it sounds exactly how I see it in my head. You know, a lot of my idols in a really strange way are all in their fifties. Yeah. And I kind of love that about this sport. I appreciate that, mate. I never thought you. I never thought you. Oh, never knew you thought about me that way. Well, but, um, no, it's all right. You're, you're definitely, no, you're definitely up there. It's a good moment for me. Yeah, but it's true. And you know, if someone said to me now, it's like, who are your heroes? I'd be like, well, Nicky Spinks, you know, Joss Naylor from his days, and his days lasted for many, many, many years. You know, I don't quickly think Jim Wormsley. You know, I don't, I don't think these young bucks who are just tearing strips off their own back i think of these people that have gone long for a very long time and you know when you look at someone like paul tyranny or nicky spinks these are people that don't necessarily train prolifically because they've already done that and now they just get the luxury of going to tour de giants and podiuming at such a long race it's like i have respect to that side of the business because so much work has gone into it that it's like no now i get to deserve to do this side of things you know i now run they now run for fun i don't do that yet but it's a definite goal and you know poor rachel my partner she hates it because i'm like oh babe i'm like 10 years off where i want to be and she's like Hmm. this is going on for another 10 years i'm like (laughs) and then it's starting so it was really nice to see like mark obviously on the podium for the 50 in his performance last year and i actually messaged him and i'm I don't mind saying this. I'm I'm not particularly melancholy and not particularly romantic type person. But I said, I'm so happy that you're having this success. Like you deserve this success. There's so many bastards in this sport and liars in this sport who pretend to be one thing. And in reality, they're not. I'm not going to name names. And then you meet a guy like Mark Derbyshire, who is just so good at running and when I saw him on that podium and Stephen was reading out his list of awards and records, he could not give a shit about that. I could just mm-hmm. tell it was just, well, I just run and those times came as a result of it. And I thought that was just, it was so nice to see him there just sort of not even smiling, just like, yeah, they, they that all happened, but it's not why I did it. And, um, there, there's just a guy that, yeah, I guess would, I will also quickly get added to my list of like, true heroes of the sport because he's just doing it for the love of it and he deserves every success he gets and i think he's gonna have a massive year this year mm. so yeah it's a, just an amazing sport and i think to give them the plug they deserve i think that is something that mud crew are doing year on year now is bringing such an eclectic mix of top level runners down which just showcases that no not everyone is doing this as a political stunt that everyone is doing this to stroke their own ego like they're doing this because they love running you know there's no cash involved in it there's no there, there was about six people at the finish when i finished so i certainly wasn't doing it for my instagram following no. it, it's not about it's not what it's about with mud crew and i love that so yeah cool yeah and it's uh you know if you want to if you want to stroke your ego i wouldn't recommend the arc of attrition anyway no it's quite a humbling race Many dreams die while suffering, right? And, um, you know, you, <laughs> once you get through that hail section onto the dunes and you're 80 miles in, 
not a lot of space for ego, I don't think. No, it was just horrific, actually, from there. And I always remember you said something to, might have been Jane in an interview or so, and it was like, she said, how did you find that? And it was straight after the race, and you said, oh, it was fine up until about hail. <laughs> and it was like, it is almost like two races in itself. Yeah. It was like, get to St. Ives, you've sort of done the arc. But then there's this like weird sub race going on, which is like yep. a formality of finishing the arc. Yes, you could yep. have two finish lines in the same race, and both would sort of be worthy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they get, the getting to St. Ives means you are going to finish this race, but actually you're starting another race. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. when you get there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Cool. I know. I loved it. I loved it. I, Will you be back down? Do you think? Will you do it again, or the fifty, or you know, and, you know, any other races down here? The fifty's tempting. Having now seen that St. Ives to the end, and with it being two races, <clears throat> Mark's time is great. It falls more into my bracket. I'm much more confident with the hundred k and less. Um, never say never. It also falls at a great time of the year. It's like, well, what else are you mm. doing, Ellis? Mm. Yeah. You can always tear out a 50 miler at the end of January. So maybe. Mm. I don't know. I hope so. Um, I'd love to see that St. Ives, that lands into St. Ives in the light. Yeah. <laughs> a part of me thinks it will be worse, though, seeing it in the light. There is always something quite nice about just your head torching you. Well, you definitely don't see St. Ives until about a mile out. Yeah. It just doesn't appear. You know, you th- keep thinking it's going to be there and it just never is. And it, it's, the, it's the, the graveyard of a lot of people's hope not seeing St. Ives. It's just, when will it be there? And yeah, I, I really think, um, head. I think you might be right. It's better not to see it. I mean, I I think uh, I don't know what what you think, but I think this is true of fells as well. Sometimes it's better not to see how far you've got to climb. Just just the next ten meters in front of you, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely in fell races, it, it often is the worst moment ever. And you know, we train ourselves to not look up, um, and you just climb on feel, and you know you're nearing the top because you've done it a million times before. Um, but yeah, there's definitely certain races. Wasdale springs to mind, where you have to climb Great Gable to make a cut off, and it's like it's horrific if you even dare glance up. That's enough to end your race. So, did you do any of the mountains in CCC in darkness? Yeah, that whole last climb. Yeah. So, and when you look up and you see those head torches so far above you, it was Jesus. Weird. Yeah, I mean, CCC would be a podcast in itself for me. I had a shite race. I basically got bollocked by my parents at Champagne-Lac. Got to 20 miles to go. And then Rachel said, I just want to see you finish, Ellis. And I think I ran something like the sixth quickest last 18 miles of the day. So for me, it was I have real rose-tinted glasses of the end of the CCC because all mm. I was doing was picking off people that really shouldn't have been ahead of me in the first place, but they were. But I remember that last climb looking up, being like, if I wasn't in a good headspace right now, I'd be crying. Yeah. And that was... And, and it was it was all... I did the last three mountains in darkness. Mm. And... Um, wow. Just as you come in... And, and somebody had warned me. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Stephen, actually. And and you look up. And, and 
you can't tell the stars from the runners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it could be a plane flying over. But um, yeah, 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 that last climb was quite spectacular, and was I mean, it was spectacular seeing it in on the UTMB itself. You know, when Tom Evans overtook Jim Wormsley on that climb, Mm. like all I kept thinking was, God, Jim would have seen that coming from so many of those switchbacks. Yeah, you know, that's where we're talking like mental resilience and how does one come back from that? Like he would have seen that coming for about half an hour, I imagine, and um, yeah. And he would have seen him pulling away as well on that long sweep to La Flagere, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and yeah. knowing that he couldn't catch him, I guess, as well. The psychological advantage of being the guy or girl doing the overtaking towards the tail end of a race is massive. I was actually talking to Robbie Britton about this a couple of days ago, and he, well, he, said, he said exactly what I just said. You know, being that person that's overtaking, well, it does two things. To you, it says... I'm having a great section of this race and it's nearly over. And to them, it says, I'm not having a great section and I don't think I've got anything left to catch them because look at the speed they're going. How are they doing it? Yeah. Oh my God, this person's some, some kind of machine, you know? Yeah, and that was something Gavin actually said to me and uh, absolute credit to Gavin's race because he was very hard to disarm. I take great pride in doing that to certain runners and he was very hard to get the better of. And... um but he did say something to me at the end, which he said, I saw your head torch coming out of Gudrivi up that climb onto the North Cliffs. And he said, in my head, I knew if you passed me then, that would be my race. You would have won that race. He said, I wouldn't have had an answer. And I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And if I would have known that, then so be it. But being the chaser, and that's why when he left me at St. Ives, I thought, God, that's so brave. This is such a long way to be being chased down. And uh, it worked for him. But in another situation, maybe it wouldn't. And um, I did quite enjoy the whole chasing element of it, definitely. Especially not knowing where they are as well. It's like, they could be any corner now. and Yeah. Yeah. Could it's be surprising a the wearing a, a paint sparred hoodie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it is surprising the coast pass. Sometimes someone can be very close to you and you don't realize it. Even in the dark with head torches, um, you think you'd assume, well, I'll see them if they're within a mile of me. I mean, otherwise, you know, you know, I probably won't see them, but they can be only a few hundred meters away and you just don't quite catch them. Definitely. And that, and that was at the back of my mind a lot, was especially on those north cliffs when you're dropping down, is I was like, I know you're here. <laughs> it was like this weird moment where any of those drops, he could have been at the bottom of them. And it just turned out every time I was at the bottom, he was at the top. Um, yeah. 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 Um, we should probably talk about Vaga a little bit before you go. Um, because people will <laughs> want to hear about it. I'm sure. Um, how did it come about? Uh you know, if I'll speak super honestly about why we've built what has become this crazy, uncontrollable beast is uh, even just some of the brands you've named off the cuff today, the world of running. And it weirdly, Varga for me started because of cycling. My old man, who, like I said before, didn't run past 40, started cycling. And he would just buy a jersey for like 20 quid and then like a true cyclist would wait until it was moth-eaten and then buy another one so six years after he bought his first jersey he went to buy another one and it was 170 quid and he was like wow what happened here like why is everything so expensive and we started looking at 
the running world and when did split shorts become 80 pounds like <laughs> when did when did t-shirts pretend to be able to get you a podium and they cost 100 quid and we wanted to start celebrating and you've heard me speaking about the mid pack to late pack runners i was like in a race of 500 people five of us think we can win 495 people are there because they just love running and i personally and i stand by this don't think there's many brands if any that are really there for the market which is the bulk market and we wanted to create a product which truly celebrated and we stand by it every single day first and last place like everyone has a value and i think that's the only thing i could ever say about varga is it's not a publicity stunt we really do like making headwear for everyone certain things will be more aspirational certain things will have more of an aspirational price point because certain things will be faster certain things will be lighter certain things cost more more money but for the people that just like i mean the rat will be the like the ultimate like tick box for varga there's just some people that just want to be safe underneath a cap flying under the radar doing excellent things that they perceive excellent and varga wants to be the brand that they feel comfortable wearing not this weird further faster vaporfly movement which just sort of leaves you ostracized even if you're quite a good runner so we started it off the back of that ideology and every day we learn something new and do something different and make another mistake and uh it's just it's it's become an absolute obsession and it is our baby and um and we look after it really really carefully and we're very careful with the brand and what we do and who we're with and where we go yeah well you seem to be going everywhere i see you a lot and i see people wearing your stuff a lot as well i had an old friend come around for dinner this was back in the summer He's a bit of a runner, a bit of a cyclist, a bit of a swimmer, but not like massively into it. And he walked into my house wearing a Varga cap. I was like, no way. You know, yeah. I mean, they're cool. They're cool looking. It's cool looking headwear anyway. The designs and stuff are nice. So yeah, I can yeah. understand why someone would wear it as a fashion thing, as well as, you know, for racing and running and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but well, um, not, you I'm seem to be getting a lot of, lot of exposure and traction. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, I don't know how many countries it is now. Well, I do. I don't know why I said that. 38 countries and counting, but um, I don't know. There's something about Varga which is special to me and to those who feel comfortable wearing it. Um, and I, I never want to try and label that. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously my grandma still thinks it's like the weirdest thing ever. And if she ever tells anyone what I do, she like, has to explain it a million times over and mum's friends take pictures of runners on the holiday in Mallorca in Varga caps and send it to her and she sends it to me and it's it's all very sweet but I think the best one I ever had was a friend of Rachel's was at the Hungarian Grand Prix and took a selfie and sent it to her and the two men behind were both in Vargas and that wasn't why <laughs> they sent the selfie and I was like oh that's quite cool actually <laughs> accidental Varga shots so I don't know. We, we sort of don't do it for that reason, but at the same time, it's always nice to see a Varga being worn in Peru. That's know. a nice validation, isn't it? Yeah. People want to. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that's Varga. There's there's your plug. 
<laughs> I don't. I, I, okay. Uh, well, I'll continue the plug. Make the plug go a little bit deeper. No, that's just weird. Um, I was going to say, are you? I don't know if you, I don't know if you are already extending into other apparel than headwear. So there's three of us at Varga. I handle the, all the PR side of things. There's the designer. He handles the design side. And there's John who handles everything no one wants to touch. It's like tax and horrible mm. stuff. We do, you need that person. We do pay tax, by the way. Um, <laughs> and um, Each one of us has a slightly different opinion on this, but we're all totally in sync on... There are certain brands out there that bring something to market. They get a bit of money and then they make something else, as in socks. And then they make a cotton T-shirt. And then they do X, Y, Z. For Varga, it's important that we make the best running cap in the world so that the minute we do hit the button and bring something else out, people will say, oh, Varga's doing socks, but they do make the best cap in the world. So, of course, they can do that. And we're not there yet. And I will drag my heels for as long as it takes until we even think about bringing it out. I think the most outrageous thing we may do is a headband so, half a hat yeah i don't know every every now and again i mean we did actually last year put out on our social media vargas swimming caps on april fool's day <laughs> and it went like weirdly viral to the point where we took it down because it was just an april fool's and i was like oh no no i can't have this like so um yeah we're not doing swimming caps just for any wild swimmers out there and it's not gonna happen nice well, glad it's glad it's going well for you. Um, and it's nice stuff. Good stuff, Jay. You got anything else for him? Um, just just what's next, really? You mentioned you're going to the states. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm going to race canyons. Um, hopefully, end of April. Canyons, hundred kilometers. Uh, again. I'll see you there. Yeah, I know. There's a big posse of you guys going. Cornish folk. Yeah, I wish I can't wait. You know. I mean, you've plugged my company. I will plug Cornwall. I love it in Cornwall. And I love the people. It's so similar to the Fell community. And when I heard there was this rabble going out to canyons, I was like, <laughs> part of me shouldn't be as happy about this as I am, but I really am. And it was nice seeing everyone at CCC and UTMB, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I'm racing canyons. Again, with this grass is always green ideology of okay, I'm going out there to run as hard as I can the American way. And I quite like the idea of you either run the best race of your life or you DNF. Like, I, I quite like it. And I know it's so wrong for me to say, but you very rarely hear someone say in an American race, yeah, I ran okay. It's like, mm. no, I ran amazing or I was so shit today. <laughs> um, I just, I want to see what it's all about. I like the fact the best runners in the world are on the side of the road with sponges on their heads. And whereas at UTMB, they're practically in their own gazebo, like an F1 race. It's, <laughs> it's, um, UTMB's got very pretty. I still quite like the fact America is weirdly... Still raw. Still raw, yeah. Yeah. It's um, interesting looking at some of the course videos and how wide those trails are and runnable. Um, it's going to be a good race. Yeah, I can't wait. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going out there to just run my heart out. So big shift in my training for that. So um, yeah, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, nice. I'll see you in Auburn. Good luck. And um, keep an eye out for Jay coming up from the rear. 
Yeah, yeah, won't won't be happening. Won't be happening. I'll be I'll be so you know that bit where you, you loop out and you come back. Yeah, you won't be seeing me when you're coming back down that bit. Yeah, but like you've heard me say, I'm going out there to either run my heart out or explode. I, see what you, I might see you. <laughs> <laughs> you might well see me. It's like some northern guy combusting on the side of the trail. I'll be like Bramble Guy 2.0. <laughs> on fire. Brilliant. Right. Thank you so much. Big pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed this. It's nice to speak about the arc. It's nice to speak to you guys. Oh, we'll definitely nice. have you on again at some point. Yeah, yeah we will. Yeah, we'll do an America. We'll see. Was it was it all worth it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to do a deep. We'll do an episode for Jay out there running the canyons. So yeah. um, we'll be like, and this, that's we'll my get guest in as well. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right, guys. Thank you so much. Cheers, Alice, but, and well done. A lot. Thank you. You hang up because I'm not going to mess this up now. Mm. Just trying to stop it, and it's not stopping. We might have to just keep talking. Oh, we just keep going, yeah. We turn it into an endurance <laughs> sport. The stop button is not working. <laughs> oh. It just keeps saying, oh, I love this. fail to stop recording. Yeah, I love this, because at one point it is now just going to stop recording. And that's how it ended. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Trail and Error podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like, subscribe, and most important of all, share it with your friends and your family. Also, if you have any guest suggestions or suggestions for features that you would like to see on the Trail and Error podcast, please get in touch with us via our social media channels at trail underscore and underscore error underscore UK. It makes more sense when it's written down, I promise you. Oh, and we're on Facebook too. See you next time. Thanks for listening.